joining a new company is like buying a new pair of trainers or buying a new pair of shoes, right? It's got to be the right fit, right? And you can do a little bit of wearing in. But if it's a bad pair of shoes, it's a bad pair of shoes. You don't keep walking in them over time and just, you know, try and ruin your feet kind of thing. Before we jump into today's 40-minute mentor episode, I wanted to share a podcast recommendation with you all. The Positive Leadership Podcast, hosted by Jean-Philippe Courtois, EVP and President of National Transformation Partnerships at Microsoft. This show shares leadership lessons from some of the top leaders of our time. You'll hear from purpose-led leaders at Netflix, Starbucks, and more, learning how to generate a positive energy that ensures success happiness and impact, as well as how to implement positive leadership in your own life. So once you finish today's episode, go and check out the Positive Leadership Podcast on any of the popular podcast platforms. Welcome back to 40 Minute Mentor, the podcast on a mission to raise aspirations and inspire the next generation of category-defining founders. From purpose-led entrepreneurs to Olympic champions, you'll learn firsthand from today's successful leaders on what it takes to be brilliant all in just 40 minutes. Today, I'm joined by Amali Alwis, CEO of Subak, the world's first non-for-profit accelerator that scales climate impact through data, policy, and behavior change. Prior to leading Subak, Amali was managing director of Microsoft for Startups UK and CEO of Code First Girls. Outside her day job, Amali is also a board member at Ada National College for Digital Skills, the Raspberry Pi Foundation, and Festival UK 2022. She's a woman of many talents, wearing many hats, so I'm really on and she took the time out of her very busy schedule to join us for today's chat. So Amali, welcome to 40 Minute Mentor. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. And what a pleasure to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Oh, the pleasure is all mine. Well, we're going to start, as we always do, with a few kickoff questions uh, just to get you warmed up. So if you don't mind, please finish the following sentences after me. My first ever job was... As a barista at Costa Coffee Shop in Wimbledon Shopping Centre. Oh, fantastic. Yeah, I think baristas and waiters, which has been probably the most consistent answer. <laughs> so you, do you still know how to make a good coffee, Amali? Because that is very, very needed in the startup world. I, I can still make a really good cappuccino. I know how to froth the milk and everything. But it was a great first job. I was actually, I was surrounded by sort of slightly older Italian men who saw me as this little sister and spent all of their time in between coffees giving me career advice. So uh, yeah, they were very sweet. <laughs> oh, fantastic. Fantastic. And brilliance to me means? Just being proud of what you do and feeling a sense of purpose in your work. That is so true. Having a purpose. I think a lot of people we speak to are kind of miserable in their jobs. And I think a lot of the time it's because they don't feel a great purpose or a connection to the purpose of the company that they work for. And I always find the best part of my job is when you connect somebody to a purpose-driven company or a mission that they just can get so excited about. And you just see the lights on their face just kind of really light up. So um, I think that's a really, really great answer. Thank you. A misconception that people have about me is that I only work and that I don't relax. I'm actually really polarized in how I live my life. I'm either working at full tilt or I'm being really, really lazy. And when I'm really lazy, I'm really lazy. And I think that's a really important balance to have, especially as a founder, because otherwise you just burn yourself out. Yeah, that's so true. And I think some, sometimes I feel like founders need to learn how to be lazy. <laughs> you, you meet certain people that just, just work nonstop and just really struggle to kind of get any downtime. But I'm the same. I love a Netflix binge. 
and nothing more than just kind of kicking back. I wouldn't say I'm brilliant at it, but when I do, I really, really get into it. <laughs> what do you like to do in your spare time, Amali? I do a lot of reading, actually, and I do Netflix binges as well. But I'm a really big fan of um, sci-fi and fantasy books. And actually, uh, before I joined Subak, I, I had some time off. And so I went onto eBay and bought the entire Discworld series, Terry Pratchett, secondhand. So I'm slowly working my way still through them. It's been a year, but I'm, I'm on to probably like book 12 or something like that. But uh, yeah, it's an amazing series. Fantastic. I'm sure there'll be some fans of Terry Pratchett's work listening to this, uh, applauding. <laughs> and finally, Amani, can you share something that we wouldn't learn from your CV? So that could be a, a failure or a setback, something from your career that you've really learned a lot from? I think probably that when I finished my graduate program, which was as a junior student, a men's shoe designer for Clark's, and you know, I wasn't continuing on as a shoe designer. I was, I was probably really lost. And I think I had a sort of a period where I really needed to think quite hard about what I wanted to do and kind of go out and have a few conversations. And people took a few chances on me, you know, and that was not anything, you know, that I could be responsible for in a way. It was dependent on other people giving me a chance and helping me to kind of explore things. That's really interesting. Really, and you've had a really, I mean, very impressive, but also non-linear career uh, i know you switched from manufacturing engineering degree you studied shoe design as you mentioned at the london college of fashion you worked with the likes of vivian westwood and at clark's and then became a, a researcher and thought leadership consultant at pwc so quite varied roles in, in different industries was this intentional or did that kind of i guess variety come about by chance i, I think it was definitely not planned but i think it was intentional and what I mean by that is, you know, I never saw myself becoming, for example, a shoe designer. But what I did find myself was, I remember when I was studying engineering and I was just feeling disconnected to the work. I was, I couldn't see what I would do with it in the future. I had this really fantastic opportunity to go and visit actually a friend of mine who is a German rapper. and met some really creative people and realized that what I was kind of missing to that sense of purpose was actually this kind of connection to my work and the creativity part of it and just being able to meet other creative people. I got really inspired by that. And then it was kind of that intentionality was around chasing creativity and what did I feel creative would look like to me. And I knew at that point, you know, I like the geeky creativeness. I like the design aspect of, you know, if you look at a, a you know, a, a plan for a shoe, you know, it looks like an engineering diagram and, and something about that kind of appealed to me. So, yeah, I think um, not planned, but intentional. But uh, yeah, chasing something which would inspire me, I guess. No, I love that. And for anyone that might be thinking about making a big career transition at the moment i mean were there particular transferable skills or, or characteristics that you felt helped you make those various moves you know whether it's from shoe design uh, to becoming a consultant i mean what were some of the things that really helped you in the various transitions i think it's almost recognizing what it is that you're good at as far as you know what you enjoy doing how do you want to spend your day and i think with all of the things i've done for example i'm really good with research i'm not good with exams so anything which allows me that space to go down little rabbit holes, to understand pictures, to then look for opportunities, to think about strategies, I get really excited by. So whether that was being a researcher, whether that was designing a range for shoes, whether that was you know running a company and thinking about how you build success in that, all of that thinks about, you know, requires you to go and be interested in things and to do research and then to structure some sort of output or solution off the back of that. Um, so those are kind of the things that I guess I took through 
In addition, I think I really liked things which enabled me to actually just meet really interesting people and kind of work with interesting people and be curious. So I think, you know, those were common threads, certainly, that I took through all of my roles, hopefully. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. I mean, I think with the nonlinear career you've had, I think times are changing and I think everyone in our industry recognises that people are staying in roles for less time than they used to. But I think there is still probably a bit of a, maybe a feeling when somebody moves around a lot that it's it's kind of job hopping. But I know that you consider it very much about chasing growth. So can you elaborate a bit on that and explain why job hopping shouldn't necessarily be like a red flag for employers? And what are some of the benefits to having that sort of variety, particularly in the earlier parts of your career? So I, I remember, I think it was just literally last week, I saw an article, I can't remember if it was FT or Guardian or where it was, but which was showing that actually people who jump jobs every couple of years in their early years are actually more likely to be in more senior roles later on. And that's really around just making sure that you are rounding your experiences and that you have you know, taking that opportunity, that window of time where you're probably, you know, you have less commitments, you might not have a family yet, you might not have mortgages, and you're sort of able to push yourself into work, you know, without as many limits on your time, and to use that time to basically get the most and to really learn and get that leg up as far as work. As far as the companies go, it's a funny one, right? Because going back to sort of almost the sort of the shoe thinking about things, Joining a new company is like buying a new pair of trainers or buying a new pair of shoes, right? It's got to be the right fit, right? And you can do a little bit of wearing in. But if it's a bad pair of shoes, it's a bad pair of shoes. You don't keep walking in them over time and just, you know, try and ruin your feet kind of thing. So I think you can give it a shot. I think you should always, you know, put your best into things. But I think if it's not the right fit for you and if you're not the right fit for them, you know, rather than just continuing to push yourself and be unhappy in something you do, find something that it's something that is more rewarding. And I think for the companies to find someone who is looking for you, you know, this person has been actively looking for an organization who they can give their best to. They're moving because they care. You know, they're moving because they want to be passionate and be connected. So if you can offer that environment for this person, they are just going to be the most incredible employee because they're going to give you time and effort and care about the work that they do because they've kind of shown that, you know, where they haven't felt that, that they've wanted to move on, get better experiences and find a new place which will make them happier. So see it as a, as a way to just recognize people who are really dedicated, who are thoughtful, who are reflective, who can be analytical about their needs and also those who are conscientious about what they want to put their time and effort to. Oh, what a great answer. And I, I love that shoe analogy there and i think i'm sure there are people listening to this that are going to be miserable in their jobs with sore feet maybe and i really hope they hear that and and realize that there are options out there you can go work for a company that you're truly passionate about because we see so many people that just kind of grind it out and are unhappy and it affects their home life and their relationships and they don't bring their best self to work anyway so i find it always really sad when you just see that continually when there is an opportunity to kind of step away so i i I hope they'll listen to your advice on that yeah and i think you know I, i say this from a position of privilege of us being in a country where there are job opportunities. I live in London, you know, there are opportunities here. You know, I have an education, you know, I don't need to worry about putting a roof over my head. So I wouldn't want to be sort of frivolous enough to say that, you know, people can just dump their jobs and just go chasing whatever they want. But I think if you are in a position where you have that choice and you can put in place some planning to allow you to bridge over making those changes, 
why would you not want to do that? You know, spending the amount of time that we do at work and how much of a role it plays in how we are happy in our lives. I think it would be a shame for someone to be miserable if they have an option to move beyond that. Very true. Yeah, I think that's a, that's a really important point to make. You've led various companies over the years, including Code First Girls, which we'll come on to talk a bit more about. And we mentioned Microsoft for Startups UK and obviously now Subac. And one of the things that we have, I think, uh, in our listenership is very aspirational, talented young people who are many long term want to become CEOs or they want to become founders. So that would be good just to delve a little bit into how you landed your first CEO role. And I guess for you, if you don't mind, tell us a bit more about the transition to a CEO. What were some of the the hardest parts for you doing that for the first time? Yeah, so I moved into my first senior leadership role and a CEO of Code First Girls. And I found the job on escapethecity.com. It was for people who are looking to switch careers and try something different, whether that's running a startup or operating a eco-lodge in Nicaragua, whatever you kind of want to do with it. I don't even know if they're still running or not, but that was there. And Code First Girls at the time had been established as a sort of a pilot program within Entrepreneur First. They had a little bit of money locked into the organization because of the way that they had incorporated. And they were basically looking for someone to come and build the company. So I saw the listing, had a, you know, went and had conversations with Matt and Alice, who were, um, you know, the co-founders of, of EF. And it was just one of those things where the more conversations I had with them, just the more excited I got about the job. And I realized that for me, that's always a really good sign when I have those conversations and you kind of start off not 50-50, but it's kind of a little bit more, okay, I'll just try this and see. And I must admit, when I apply for jobs, I have a, a habit of probably applying for a lot of jobs, which are just way out of either my skill set or, you know, maybe it's not something that I'm completely convinced with. But it's almost, I think, you know, having that opportunity when you apply to try the job on virtually, right? To think about, look, if I get that call back, what do I say to these people? How do I feel about this? Why do I feel this is motivating for me? And that's the kind of experience I had with CFG, which was the more that I had discussions around it, the more I understood the job, the more they understood me, and the better it felt as far as a sort of a fit. Making that switch itself it was a punt, you know, it, you know, I'd never taken on a role like that before. But I think what really helped me was having those conversations and also going and having conversations with others who were in sort of leadership positions as well to try and understand what are the puzzle pieces? You know, what do I need to be able to do to be able to take on a job as a chief exec? And part of that is, you know, had I managed teams? Yes, I had managed teams at TNS. I had run functions. Had I generated revenues? Yes, I had done that. I had been a consultant. You know, had I done sort of financial work and sort of, you know, budgeting and stuff? And yes, I'd done that as far as sort of managing uh, my commercial accounts and stuff. So you suddenly realize that whilst you haven't done the job in its entirety, you've done the pieces of it. And then the question becomes the pieces which are missing. Can you either, do you feel excited about learning those missing pieces or there are are there people that you can pull in to help you or training that you can do to kind of fill those gaps? So I think that the biggest thing as far as people moving into a leadership position is just don't feel intimidated by it. You've probably done, you know, 70, 80% of what you need to do already, but just to kind of put yourself at ease, try and understand what that looks like. And then think about how you would overcome the differences. You know, it's not about if I don't have it at 100%, I don't go. It's more about if I've got 75%, it's a go. And then this 25% are the bits that I need to work on. And this is how I would go about doing that. So make the, the move real, I guess, and try to understand what that looks like. 
such great advice. And Alice Benzik came on 40 Minute Mentor a couple of seasons ago. And I can imagine how her and, and Matt just, uh, you know, the vision for the role and working alongside such brilliant entrepreneurs and leaders like them would be uh, very appealing. And you obviously went on to to get that CEO gig. You led the, the business for more than four years, achieved some incredible milestones along the way. And it's very topical because um, they just announced a very impressive Series A raise. So a very exciting time. For anyone that hasn't heard of Code First Girls, and I'm sure if you hadn't before the last few weeks, you, you might well do now. But for anyone that hasn't, can you just share a bit more about the company, why you got involved and what was the role that you played in that journey? Yeah, so Code First Girls is focused on getting women into the tech industry. And they do that through largely education, but also working with corporate clients to help them understand how do they recruit, how do they make sure that they get people into role. And when I left Code First Girls, I hired in a new chief exec, a woman called Anna Brailsford, who's gone on to continue to grow the company in amazing ways. And, you know, to see them have that raise uh, recently was really, really exciting. For me, as far as when I joined Code First Girls, it didn't exist as a company. They had run a, a pilot and I inherited some very helpful sort of uh, people from a from a Matt and Alice and their advice perspective. But we had a, you know, a random Dropbox full of a few files. I had a part-time associate um, and it was a build. It was a build from a ground up based on a, a sort of a, an idea of what could be a good idea. As far as why I, I sort of, you know, felt, I guess, a connection, to a certain extent, I, I was the Code First Girls. I was, I was that person who was interested in computing and science and technology. And I, I, I went on lots of, con- I had lots of conversations with people ahead of joining and speaking to some of those individuals who were either thinking about those types of courses or who hadn't done science to think about the opportunities that they had missed. That made me feel really sad. And it was like, look, here is something which I just find really inspiring, get really excited by. If someone hasn't had that opportunity because of, you know, something that some random person said to them when they were 12 or some expectation that was laid out when they were a kid, you know, what a shame. You know, we have this incredible growth environment, this incredible growing industry, and yet people aren't being part of that and women aren't being part of that. Half of the population is not being part of that because of social sort of constructs. And that for me just felt deeply unfair. So that's why, you know, for me, I was really passionate about sort of saying, look, how can we change that? How can we, you know, remove some of these barriers and help people find these really incredible careers? Oh, what, a, what an amazing mission. And I can, uh, you can see how passionate you, you still are about the business. What were you most proud of during your tenure there as, as CEO? What were some of the milestones that you achieved? I, I think just the, the sheer numbers were were slightly bonkers. I mean, when I joined, one of the key campaigns we launched was what was called the Code First Girls 2020 campaign, which is to teach 20,000 young women to code by the end of 2020, which delighted to say that, you know, Code First Girls went through, it has since gone on, I think they've hit, gone through the 40,000 mark, something like that now. And at the time, and, and I think this is still the case, that Code First Girls teaches more young women to code each year than those numbers that commence an undergraduate degree in computer science in the UK. Which, which as a, as a tiny not-for-profit, to be able to have that scale of impact is incredible. And I think thinking about that scale of impact and the, the model that was built with people who have already gone on courses, being invited back in uh, if they are interested to become volunteer instructors, people who are already working in the industry, again, joining us as, as instructors and volunteers, the cascade impact was really exciting. And I think it really came home for me once when I saw a tweet. It was a young woman who was joining for a course that Code First Girls were running. We were hosting a 
Twitter. And one of her teachers was another young woman who had also done a Code First Girls about eight months before. And she herself had been taught by another young woman who had done a course about a year before that. And so you had these three sort of generations of young women who were teaching each other. So thinking about that cascade impact, that one education intervention and a good system, which is designed to kind of allow that sort of teach the teacher or sort of extension can have, the impact has been incredible. And that's the bit which I still, you know, am incredibly proud about. I mean, and what a legacy Code First Girls you will will have and ha- continue to have in terms of bringing more representation into tech from girls and women and helping to solve this pipeline problem that we hear about all the time. Tech is notoriously not diverse enough. And although there's definitely progress made, we've spoken a lot about this on the podcast, there is obviously still quite a long way still to go. And I'm hoping very much so that the likes of Cobus Girls and, and other companies out there are going to continue to kind of really push the boundaries when it comes to making the industry much more um, equal. Why do you think, given you've been around the tech ecosystem for such a long time now and, and uh, you know, are, are very much a key leader in it, why do you think we're still not there yet? And what would you like to see change sort of in the years ahead? I think, you know, as much as tech has its own history with this as an issue, right? And we can talk to, you know, I, I had the pleasure of being on a, a radio show once with Dame Stephanie Shirley. And uh, she was talking about how she worked at the post office when the transition sort of happened as far as computing moving from actually a female-led industry. And, you know, the early programmers were women. They were punching punch cards, you know, Dame Stephanie Shirley. She had a company where there were literally women with kids punching on their kitchen tables type of thing. But as soon as money started getting into it, for example, the post office actually changed their job bans, their classifications, so that less women could be doing those jobs and the more profitable roles could be held by men. So there has been some active and targeted sort of social engineering around the tech industry to push women out of the industry. And, you know, that plus, you know, early advertising of home computers, which was largely focused on young boys and all of these types of things. But all of that is is a result of just society as a whole, right? When we're not just talking about the tech industry, we're talking about how we as society see our women, right? And how we see the role that women play in society. Um, you know, we are fortunate in the UK to have, you know, from a from a, a job perspective, you know, about 50% of the workforce are women, but we still have a gender pay gap, right? We still have more women who are doing more, less paid roles, junior roles, not holding senior positions. So this is kind of just part of a much larger conversation. And thankfully, you know, we have had change. It is not enough, but change is happening. But it is, you know, societal change, which is kind of driving a lot of this and societal challenges and talking to those young girls, what they are told, you know, are young girls encouraged by their families to be, you know, engineers, to be doctors, to be physicists, to be, you know, astronauts, to follow um, sort of, you know, sciences and, and technology subjects. And the reality is they still aren't. And I think it was uh, the Women in Engineering Society, maybe a few years ago, who did a study actually looking at the types of jobs that parents would consider suitable for their girls and boys. And inevitably for the girls, it's things like, you know, being nurses, being teachers still to these days, for boys, it's being engineers or footballers or, you know, scientists and stuff. So there, this is why we, we still have low numbers, both because of the systemic issues as far as the technology sector, but also just societal issues as a whole. But thankfully, you know, change is possible. Indeed. And I really hope, I mean, my daughter's six and is very interested in all things technology. And I, I, having worked in this industry for a while, I'm very hopeful that she will um, follow suit and work in it potentially. She's certainly showing the, the interest in it. Uh, but I really hope by the time she's my age that, that, that we'll be having a very different conversation around this. 
I really hope you're enjoying today's episode so far. But before we continue hearing from today's mentor, I wanted to take a minute to give a shout out to our series sponsors, Alchemist. Alchemist is an industry-leading learning and development company using immersive and interactive experiences to help increase employee engagement, levels of happiness, and achievement across your teams and overall productivity. Alchemist presents L&D departments with an opportunity to innovate and be bold in their approaches to blended learning. If you love the sound of this as much as we do here at JBM, then head over to thisisalchemist.com forward slash 40 minute mentor to learn more. And now back to our 40 minute mentor. Just for anyone that's listening to this, any founders, uh, investors potentially from tech that clearly have a lot of influence, do you have any advice in terms of how, you know, whether it's founders or CEOs of companies, what they can do in their companies right now to make the industry as a whole slightly more diverse, more inclusive to different types of backgrounds? I think the biggest thing is just to actually care about it. And it's one of those things where, you know, we we care about it without having to know all the answers and start that journey, even if you're not perfect. We set targets as, as business leaders on everything, you know, whether that's looking at staff retention, whether that's thinking about our revenues and our profit margins. We don't always know the answers. So, you know, you'll set your, your goal at the beginning of the year and say, OK, we want to reach, you know, X amount of million in revenue this year. And then what you do is you go away and you figure it out. You speak to your leadership team, you speak to your investors, you think about your products, and you reverse engineer what will be a good way for you to actually deliver to that. Thinking about your diversity in a business is the same. You know, you won't know all the answers going in, but don't shy away from setting yourself some targets and then using that as an opportunity to go and explore and find those the right mechanisms for your business and put your money where your mouth is. You know, you don't need a huge amount of it. And I think even for small companies, even for startups, there's an awful lot you can do to actually get support. Um, Organizations like Tech Talent Charter, which do sort of peer-to-peer sort of company-to-company support and and offer sort of advice from others going on the same journey are great places to start. So um, don't be worried about making a start, even if you're not very good at it. That's very true. Great advice. And for anyone that's listening to this that is looking to get into technology, maybe STEM roles, um, particularly women, and even more so potentially women from underrepresented backgrounds, what advice do you have for them to uh, break into tech and be successful in the industry? I would say first thing, just get started. And second thing, find a good community. So whether that's, you know, joining courses like Code First Girls, you have organizations like Founders and Coders, the Institute of Coding, which actually has an umbrella organization, but they bring together loads of free courses run by universities, you know, not just university degrees, but actually short courses and stuff as well. So there are loads and loads of organizations out there where you can actually access education. But I think the biggest thing is do so with others if you can, because, you know, I don't know, for a lot of people, myself included, doing something on your own can be really, really lonely. So actually finding people who are going along the same journey as you, who can keep you motivated, who can meet up with, who can study with, it's just a really important part of that. Um, And then just go and have some conversations, go to meetups, go to events, go to conferences, you know, get to meet some of the other people working in these ecosystems. Because thinking about sort of, you know, feeling like an outsider, you know, how do you stop becoming feeling like an outsider? You start to become an insider, right? And the only way to do that is to start sort of feeling comfortable in those environments. And definitely, you know, it's not about navel gazing. It's not just about, you know, finding a small group and just sticking to it. Understand the industry. So, you know, use that opportunity to kind of explore what is out there and find the place that you're comfortable with and what inspires you. So true. And and I must say that I think as an industry, people in technology 
are very giving of their time and very welcoming from my experiences. And I think there are some fantastic communities, whether it's it's the ones you mentioned. And even if you are looking for another role within it, whether it's an operations role or whether it's um, you're being a founder yourself, you know, I'm part of a, a founders group of over 350 founders. And it's not only incredibly useful for tactical things and strategic things, but also just as a form of group therapy, just to talk to others that are in a similar boat to you to get ideas and, and a support network, kind of that peer-to-peer network. I think it's something we all could do with. So I'd, I'd absolutely echo what you just said there and um, encourage people to go out and find it. I'm really excited to come on to talk about what you're doing now, and that is as CEO of Subax. So for anyone that's not heard of the business before, can you tell us a bit about you know Subax's mission and why you decided to join when you did as CEO? So Subac is really around saying, look, climate change, and the, I think this is as far as sort of um, startups and founders go, and the idea that you want to go and solve big, juicy problems, this is the biggest, juiciest problem out there, right? If there is no planet for us in 100 years, that's a pretty big issue, right? And, you know, whilst the planet will continue on, human beings, you know, we're the ones who will suffer, right? So we have this time crunch. We We are trying to solve these problems at speed. We know that these big issues are not just localized, that they are global. So Subac was really formed around this idea that, number one, we need to be answering problems more quickly and more effectively. And to do so, we need to share information. We need to share data. Number two was that whilst we have lots of money going into the industry, quite a lot of it is equity-based, which is really important and critical, but it's not the full picture, right? Because not every answer to climate actually will deliver a profit, right? So we have to have a space for doing the non-profit generating parts or the parts which maybe don't suit an equity funding model. And it might be just that they're revenue businesses or other types of things as well. And the other part was to say, look, if we are talking about businesses which are running as whether it's revenue businesses or not-for-profits or charities, um, how do we ensure that we can take a little bit of a lesson from the for-profit space and help them to scale better? Because that's one of the challenges as far as really understanding how business growth looks and unpicking that growth and how do you actually continue to run sustainable businesses while still having impact and impact at scale. So that's really where Subac came from. And to kind of deliver against that goal, we basically have a not-for-profit accelerator, which helps climate-focused not-for-profits who are operating in that data space to think about their business and to to build up and scale. We also fund um, fellowships. So these are data fellowships, so individuals who are uh, undertaking really interesting and additive work within the climate data space uh, to go off and be able to do that. Again, small amounts of funding available there. And then the last part, which is that community part, which is to say, look, we're all collecting terabytes of data every single day. And the old position, which is that you collect all of this data, you hoard it, you sit on it for a decade until it's obsolete, just frankly, isn't going to help anyone as far as solving climate problems. So let people know what you have. So we have a, a global data catalog. If you go to data.sobac.org, anyone can access this, where we're basically mapping climate data. Um, some of it is open, some of it is shared, or it might be behind paywalls, but it's a way for you to find out who has what data. So that rather than people unnecessarily then having to go and repeat data exercises, they at least know who's got the information and they can go and open conversations there. So that's really what, what Subac is about. And in a way, I guess, taking that lesson from Code First Girls as well, it's about creating that cascade impact. So we are helping others who can then go on and help others and do more interesting things. We're also going hunting for neglected areas. And this is around saying, again, that we don't want to just be addressing problems which are either uh, problems in the global north or problems in area where you know we're connected through through our network. We want to actually solve problems in the areas which are the most impacted 
or those who are the greatest levers as far as reducing carbon uh, emissions as well. So that's really, I guess, you know, Subak and what we're kind of doing. And we're, we're fundraising ourselves. We've just launched our own grant fundraise to raise uh, £20 million to actually go and expand into six new global markets. And again, to kind of address that and create these sort of hubs for data excellence um, and just make sure that people have the right tools and the right information to actually solve climate issues. What an amazing mission and what a great impact you will be able to have in what is undeniably the biggest crisis facing our planet. So hats off to you and the team. I'm very excited about what you're going to be doing. For anyone that's intrigued, can you share a bit more about the type of startups or founders that you're working with? And for anyone that's thinking about getting involved, like what can founders expect from the accelerator and what sort of experience are they going to have? So as far as the, the organizations go, if you are a founder who's running a business operating under a not-for-profit structure, so that can be a limited company, which is limited by guarantee, that can be a community interest company, a CIC, that can be a charity, you know, we're, we're very flexible. But if effectively, if the revenue uh, structure or sorry, the equity structure is, is one that, you know, you're prohibited from using as far as your incorporation and you're working on climate and you have a data theme, come find us. How that sort of looks, so we have companies who are doing anything from looking at the green jobs transition. So a great company called Autonomy, for example, who you might have heard a lot of stuff they've done around the four-day week, but they're actually looking at profiling jobs within polluting industries against non-polluting industries, so green industries, and trying to help organizations, companies, local councils to basically put education interventions and understand how they actually transfer people from one to another. You have companies like um, Ember who do some really incredible work around data on coal transition. So they're really involved in helping the government actually make a decision around moving off gas boilers and, and our net zero targets there as well. You have companies like Open Climate Fix who are basically looking at solar forecasting and again sort of collecting data against making sure that we optimize you know our, our energy consumption and sort of think about how we use solar grids and that side of things so we have a real variety of organizations but all of them have this kind of backbone of data and the idea being can we actually help to solve some of these problems that we're facing as far as climate issues and the difference between what we're intending to do versus where we are at the moment and trying to understand how we transition from one to the other. And that's really where we're kind of focusing on. So yeah, anyone who's in sort of climate and data as a not-for-profit can find us because we'd love to have a chat. Yeah, fantastic. And I, and I really hope people are going to be picking up the phones and sending in some emails and getting involved because it's a, you know amazing opportunity with a fantastic team sort of led by Amali. We featured lots of VCs on the podcast over the years. What do you think that traditional VC firms are lacking when it comes to investing in climate tech? Because we obviously see lots of noise about, uh, you know, wanting to do good in this respect. But I think Subak are really kind of you know, clearly going to make a big difference and, and, and are being very targeted in how you're doing it. So how can Subak bridge the gap between the more traditional VC investing to what you're doing? Yeah, and I, I think this is it's more about understanding what the limits of your investment mechanism are. So I come, you know, from Microsoft startups, for example, I was working almost exclusively with B2B SaaS companies, right? Fantastic organization, doing really interesting things. But I think if we're trying to say that the only way to find answers and the only way to fund climate issues is through equity-based investment, it's just not going to work because it doesn't suit every type of business, right? And even for a VC, you have a certain idea of you want a certain amount of return in a certain number of years within a, a certain sort of frame of return ratio, right? That, that's what you've sort of calculated within your business. So they can't fund everyone, 
but when we're talking about climate as a mission, as a, as a, as a problem to be solved, not all issues are going to be solved using those mechanisms. So I think it's more about saying, look, how can we collectively, as an industry, as a funding industry for climate challenges, how do we fund those different areas and make sure that the areas which are of greatest impact and are most impacted by climate challenges are funded to actually deal with those challenges. So that's where I see very much Subac as working sort of hand in hand and, and other grant funding industries working hand in hand with the equity industries to just make sure that we're actually giving a full spread of funding availability to for all types of companies who are actually addressing these organisational issues as far as sort of climate issues and stuff as well. No, thank, thank you so much. And I think given the scale of the problem, it's so important that we all come together and do our part, both at a kind of industry level, but also a broader society societal one. And I guess to that point, anyone listening to this that cares but doesn't maybe know exactly how they can play their part, whether it's big or small steps to move the needle when it comes to climate change, do you have any particular advice in that respect? I think just get involved. And again, sort of thinking about whether that's, you know, thinking about your next job. So there are some really great groups. So people like um, Slack group for work on climate, which is a fantastic opportunity if you're if you're looking to sort of switch. Uh, but even if you're sort of working for an organization already, whether that's a charity, whether that's a for-profit, a large company, a startup, you know, think about what threads of sustainability that you can help that business to kind of explore and to adopt better sort of green practices. The other one is obviously just voting with your feet. You know, you've got local MPs, your local parties that you're involved in. And I think this is the other side as far as SUBAC goes which is the data is obviously really critical, but it's what you then do with that data that matters. And that's where the policy side comes in as well. Because once you've actually understood what that data landscape is, so let's say you find, I don't know, that the current um, landscape doesn't allow for the full utilization of solar power, you know, how can you actually be then helping people who are making those decisions, the policymakers, the members of the public, to make better informed decisions about things. Um, so people looking to get involved, you know, how can you help people that you are working with to actually make better decisions around climate issues? And even sort of, you know, thinking about education and how you can sort of change your own personal behavior. So we have uh, a, a great company called Aim High, who are again, one of our members, they do green education interventions. Um, and they found that they can actually really change people's perceptions and behaviors by helping them to understand what that looks like. So I think, you know, go on your personal journey to understand the sort of the green implications of the lives that we all live. You know, none of us are perfect, you know, all, all of us, we're kind of managing that tension between prosperity and growth and living our lives and being happy and having families and putting roofs over our heads. But I think it's a shame if we don't understand the cost of that. And I think that's the thing that we really do need to as society, which is to sort of better understand what the implications of those actions are and think about what we can all be doing to actually make things better uh, and deliver a sort of a greener outcome, one which hopefully you know leads to less climate change, less floods, less droughts, all of these types of things. Yeah, very true. And I think everybody listening to this will be, I, I hope, uh, in agreement about the importance of the work that you're doing and uh, keen to play their part and support that. I think you've also got some really high profile people on the advisory board who are, who are clearly very invested in this, including former 40 Minute Mentor Michelle Yu from Supercritical, uh, previous co-founder of Songkick. I've always talked about, and I think any founders listening to this um, that don't have an advisory board are missing out because it's been incredibly valuable for JBM. It's one of the most important things I've ever done was create our advisory board quite early in our journey. What for you are the biggest benefits of having a strong board of advisors? And how do you lean on them as a, as a CEO? 
Yeah, I mean, I, I think I'll be preaching to the choir here, James, when you say that, you know, being the head of a business, being a founder, it can be a really lonely business, right? And you won't know everything. And unlike when you're working at a big company where you have this wonderful, convenient group of thousands of individuals where you can just go onto your intranet and email people and say, can I have a chat about this? You don't have that as a founder. So I think for me, an advisory board has always been, you know, how do I find some mechanism to actually be able to bounce ideas and for people to hold me to account to a certain extent? You know, if, if I'm doing something, have I become a bit too wood for the trees? Am I still chasing growth in the right way? Are there things I might not have considered? You know, and it's not that, you know, your advisory board shouldn't be making the decisions for you. That's your job as a, as a business leader. But they are your opportunity to just make sure that you're hearing diverse voices and that you're not missing opportunities just because it's not part of your personal experience up to date. So think about it as sort of, you know, bringing on board, whether it's five or you know seven people or whatever it is, who have seven more lives and seven more sort of lifespans of experience who you can call on. And picking those people really carefully, I think is really critical. And I remember when I created my first board for Code First Girls. And I actually went and had a chat with the old chair of a business I worked for, TNS, who was always really approachable and said, look, you were the chair of you know a really big company. He, he sits as a Ned on a number of other companies as well and said, look, what do I need to do? You know, How do I need to put this together? And he said to me, look, remember that this board is there for your business, but it's also there for you. So these need to be people who you can kind of grow from, you can learn from, you can work with, who will be supportive of you. And, you know, just to see that as an opportunity to not have to suffer in silence, I think, in a lot of cases, uh, and help you, you know, with some of those business challenges, whether that's raising revenue, whether that's finding new funding, whether that's, you know, problems with HR, whatever that is. I couldn't agree more. And I think the best board of advisors that have that that interesting combination of being able to hold you to account and sometimes tell you hard truths and you know be that critical friends but also they have your back and are really invested and you know will open up their networks for you will champion you will be there when you most need them and i think you need the combination of the good cop bad cop in a board of advisors and it, it typically will really get the best out of you I, yeah i really agree uh, molly just uh, before we get to our wrap-up questions you yourself have a variety of board advisory mentoring roles alongside a very busy day job. How do you balance all these different commitments and how do they make you a better CEO? And I think going to that previous point around when you're the head of a business, there's no promotion there, right? I mean, there's nowhere else for me to go as far as kind of moving up. So thinking about my own growth, thinking about my own development, how do I continue to help Subak grow? right? And how do I continue to be able to be the one directing others? I need to have a growth journey myself. And I think for me, a board has always been a really great way to do that. And, you know, you mentioned earlier, I sit on the board at Ada College, it's, you know, digital education, something I'm very passionate about. I sit on the board at the Raspberry Pi Foundation. And again, the focus on digital education, as well as sort of chip and technology, something really, really important. But beyond even just the resonance with what they do and where they focus, the people on those boards are incredible. So I get to, you know, learn from some incredible other leaders of businesses. And the number of times I'll be sitting there and someone will, you know, one of the other board members will say something and I'll sit there and go to myself, wow, that was really thoughtful. I had never thought about it like that. Or, you know, that was a really good way to say that. Or, yeah, this is something I need to be thinking about doing at, at you know, my own company. So it's a really fantastic way to both 
use your own expertise and help another organization to develop, but also to be reciprocating back and learning from those people around there as well. So I would always recommend there's never time, you know, and I'm a firm believer of you never have time, you make time. And I don't always get it perfectly right. I don't regret any of those roles that I've taken on. I get really inspired by them. And I would always recommend that people use that as an opportunity to kind of continue to contribute something back, but also to learn from as well. Completely. Uh, thank you so much, Amali. We're sadly at a close here, but before we finish, we'll just do our final three wrap-up questions. So in one sentence, what do you think the future holds for CBAC? Hopefully growth, which will lead to slower climate change. Very important uh, future. Fingers crossed on that. If you could be mentored by anyone dead or alive, who would that be and why? Oh, wow. I'd actually, I'd really like Dame Stephanie Shirley. Um, I think she's pretty incredible. And I'd love to, I'd love to kind of just hear about how she built her businesses and, you know, the adversity that she faced, but also how she moved beyond. So yeah, a very savvy woman, but yeah, very inspirational. No, that's a, a great answer. And, and finally, Amali, what's the best bit of advice that you've ever received that you'd like to pass on to our listeners? I think probably from one of my, my old directors, which was to just say, you know, you and, and, and this, this was actually thinking about research. And she was sort of saying, when you present numbers to me, tell me the what, the so what, and the now what, right? Which was the, tell me what the picture is, tell me why that matters, and then tell me what you would do next. And I think that has always really stuck with me, and especially thinking about businesses and bringing people along the journey and getting people inspired, you know, drawing a good picture for people, helping people to see what something would look like. I think that's really, really important because in a way, Subak does the same in that, you know, the data is is great, but it's how you then convince people to actually change or do things differently off the back of that that makes a difference. So that becomes really critical. Amazing. Marley, thank you so much for such an enjoyable, inspiring and thought-provoking conversation. Uh, I've really enjoyed chatting and uh, yeah, I know our listeners will too. So uh, thank you very much for, uh, for, for taking the time and being a 40-minute mentor. An absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for listening today. I really hope you enjoyed my conversation with the brilliant Amali Dawis. And if you haven't already, please consider leaving us a review and hitting the subscribe button on your favorite podcast platform. It really does help us a lot. And I love reading your feedback. That's everything for this week, but please don't forget to tune in next Wednesday when I'm joined by Ian Hogarth, a hugely accomplished entrepreneur, the co-founder and former CEO of Songkit a serial angel investor and co-founder of Plural, an exciting new early stage platform dedicated to investing in Europe's next generation of tech companies with global ambitions. Here are some snippets as a little preview to the episode. If you're going to do cold emails, which does work, you know, I've invested off the back of a cold email. I would say that you kind of need to just do the work to actually find an investor who clearly cares about your mission. Estonia has a population of a million people, but they already have seven unicorn startups and Startups have contributed 3% plus of GDP to Estonia.